0: Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence among us, in us, through us. Know that, Paul says, our lives are hidden with Christ and God by the Spirit, and so we want to just dial ourselves into that reality to be awake and attuned. We set our intention right now to open up our whole person, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our spirits to you. Would you come and... Would you speak to us? Would you teach us what it looks like to be people who hold deep faith and trust and surrender while also wrestling honestly with doubts about about you, about ourselves, about the world? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're going to talk about doubt. I'm sure you're all excited. Um, but if you are experiencing doubts, I pray that this is an encouragement to you. I know I, I became a Christian in a church where there was an assumption that you never doubt, or at least we never talked about it. And you know, I always wanted a space to talk about it. I'm thankful that scripture speaks to it. And so I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Maybe you're in that season right now where you're like at a church worship service, maybe even this morning, or you're like at a Christian concert or a Christian event, a Bible study or something. And like everybody else around you is like all in. Everybody seems to be like, yes, this is amazing. God is so real. And you're just sort of like, I don't know. I'm not really into it. Am I crazy for believing this? Like this doesn't actually, this seems a little crazy. Like we're worshiping a God who died and rose from the dead. And now is is this invisible God in the sky. Um, I'm not sure I really believe this. Like, I don't know if you ever have those doubts, if you ever wrestle with those doubts, like Christianity being hard to believe. Maybe some of you are in that season right now. But that's what we're going to talk about today. Oz Guinness, uh, the great author, uh, Christian author, says, Drawing from C.S. Lewis, there are two equal and opposite errors into which Christians are inclined to fall when thinking about doubt. On the one hand, those who are theologically liberal tend to be too soft on doubt, Lionizing such notions as ambiguity and uncertainty and verging on a spiritual permissiveness that becomes a slipway to unbelief. On the other hand, those who are theological conservative tend to be too hard on doubt, demonizing the dire consequences of unresolved doubt and verging on a spiritual perfectionism that leaves doubters in such a state of guilt or despair that they dare not acknowledge their doubts to others or even to themselves." I highly commend. He has a great little article called, I Believe in Doubt. It is a phenomenal little treatment on faith and doubt. And I just want to say, if you've ever wrestled with doubt or uh, you're wrestling with doubt right now, you're not alone. Today, we want to look at a story that I think is not the traditional place. Uh, Poor Thomas, man, doubting Thomas. Like That's the place we want to go in John 20 with doubt. But there's actually all kinds of doubters in the Bible. And as we continue our study in the book of Matthew, Uh, We're going to go to a very non-traditional place, John the Baptizer, and hear his story of wrestling with doubt. And so let's look together as John doubts Jesus. Matthew writes, "When when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else. When uh, Matthew here has, at the beginning in verse 1, this little uh, phrase, when Jesus had finished giving instructions. Remember, this is Matthew's uh, literary marker to a shift from a block of Jesus's teaching, which we just saw in chapter 10, to a new narrative section. There's five of these literary transitions in the book of Matthew. Jesus has just finished teaching in Matthew chapter 10 on mission and sending his disciples out on mission, and then he himself goes out to do the very things he just taught about, to teach and to preach and to heal himself. And then we're reintroduced again here um, to John the Baptizer, who we first met in chapter three at Jesus's baptism, who is now in prison. And we'll come back to this more fully in chapter 14, but long story short, King Herod had arrested John and locked him up for publicly calling out his affair and subsequent marriage to his sister-in-law. Additionally, John had been preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand and that there would be a new king coming to deliver Israel and establish his reign and rule on the earth. And you can imagine how that went over with the current King Herod, not so well. Since John last saw Jesus... He says he had heard about all the things he was doing, which is a reference to all of his teaching and his healings that we just read about in chapters four through nine. So he sends his disciples out while he's in prison to ask him, literally the translation here is, are you the coming one? Which is this technical term in the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament for the Messiah, right? You can read that in Malachi and Isaiah and Daniel and other places, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? Now, let's just stop right here and take in the significance of what's happening in this moment. John, the one who was full of the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. John, the one who undoubtedly grew up hearing stories about Jesus from his mother Elizabeth. John, who literally moved out into the desert. As the forerunner to the Messiah, to preach about the coming kingdom of God, the one who was there who baptized Jesus, who saw the skies open up, and he heard God say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He watched as the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus. John, who boldly proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and whom I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. This John is now having a full-blown crisis of doubt. Now, what's interesting is, um, if you read back in the church history, most biblical commentators and teachers, up until about the time of the Enlightenment, uh, struggled with this passage because they didn't have a category for such a luminary, prominent figure doubting. Uh, Again, we always think of Thomas as the doubter, but not John the Baptist. In an effort to explain this away, they would often, uh, as they were commentating on this passage, say something like, well, it's not really John who's doubting. He's just asking for his disciples. And they would try to explain it away, but that's not actually what it says in the text. We have to come to grips with John's doubt. What was behind his doubt? Why did he doubt? Well, John doesn't explicitly say, but many scholars have speculated that John was disappointed Because Jesus didn't meet his expectations. I don't know if that rings any bells with you. In Matthew chapter 3, if you remember, John preaches about a coming one who would bring the fire. John loves to talk about, he's a prophet, he likes fire. He talked about the axe, you know, cutting the tree down. He's, He's got an axe in one hand to cut down unfruitful trees and a shovel in the other to sift the chaff in the granary of God's judgment, right? And so maybe John's hoping for this powerful judge who would rally an army to overthrow the Romans and King Herod and who would cast unrepentant Israelites out of his kingdom. Maybe that's John's sort of framework for how he thought about the kingdom. But as it turns out, Jesus is a different kind of Messiah. Instead of rallying an army, he calls a small group of peasants from poor backgrounds to become his followers. Instead of destroying their enemies, he says, forgive your enemies and love your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. He heals poor people, and he feasts with the worst of sinners instead of casting them out of Israel. And most of Jesus' ministry happens not in the strategic capital of Jerusalem, which if you're leading a revolution, that's where you go, right? You go to Washington, D.C. You don't go to northeast Indiana. No offense if you're from northeast Indiana, but it's just not the strategic capital of the United States. And most of Jesus' ministry happens in the backwoods of Galilee. New Testament scholar uh, uh, and commentator on Matthew Dale Bruner says, in a word, Jesus is out in the sticks healing the sick, insignificant little individuals here and there, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religion ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus's do-goodism in the hills. What kind of Messiah... Is this? And that's the fundamental question of chapters 11 and 12. What kind of Messiah is this? The first thing I want us to learn from John's story about doubt is simply this everyone goes through seasons of doubt. Everyone goes through seasons of doubt. And, and here's the thing doubt is not even unique to Christians, right? Like, doubt is part of the human condition. If you're not doubting, you're not being honest. Even atheists doubt. I was reading this week an account by a guy named Thomas Nagel, who's one of the most outspoken atheists in academia today. And here's what he writes about his own atheism. I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Huh, isn't that interesting? An atheist acknowledging that not all Christians are knuckle-dragging backwoods You know, uneducated people from the South. I'm from the South. (laughs) It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. I'm curious whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there's a God. An atheist just acknowledging I have doubts. I mean, what is a Christian except a deconstructed atheist? <laughs> Everybody doubts. And here's, what, here's the reframe for a lot of Christians. Doubting is not bad. It's not evil. It's not wrong. Doubt and faith actually are partners, not enemies, in the journey of following Jesus. If you haven't doubted yet, you w- just wait. Your time is coming. As one pastor put it, doubt is a blind date that we're all going to be set up with one day. And and here's the thing, doubt is not the same as unbelief, and doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is this sort of confidence. It's this closed-minded rejection of God. It's a turning away from God and saying there's no way that God can exist. That's unbelief. Unbelief. Doubt is more this open-minded uncertainty that sort of wavers between belief and unbelief. It's sort of in the no man's land. It's a divided heart trying to reconcile multiple realities. You know, this, we have this saying oftentimes we use as elders in really complicated situations, two things can be true at the same time, right? We want that just to be one. But it's like, how do I hold on to this while also experiencing this? That's the space where doubt begins to pop up. And I would argue that doubt is a normal part of belief formation. Doubt is a normal part of of how we know things of of any kind, right? I I love that, that cry in the Gospels where they say, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. It's faltering, the theological journey of forming beliefs is not just a one time thing. It's a lifelong, ongoing, and often painful process that tends to follow a predictable developmental pattern, right? There is a pattern to how we form beliefs. And I'm distinguishing here between beliefs and faith, okay? But belief formation, I like this framework from author A.J. Swoboda as he talks about this uh, in his book on doubt. He says, we go through this sort of three-stage journey, and we go through this over and over and over again in life, right? Any kind of belief formation goes through this. Construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. This is true if you're a Christian or not. Construction, right? We all have basic structures of belief that are established in what we might call a pre-critical way, right? We don't reflect on them. We don't think about them. They're handed to us. They're sort of inherited beliefs, that are passed down from our family of origin or maybe our first church community. This is how similar to language acquisition for a baby or a child. You imitate. It's how you learn how to speak. It's the same way we form our earliest beliefs. Now, the problem, this is a good thing, right? Without this, we we wouldn't believe anything. But the problem during this stage is that we can often receive uncritically both good theological truths alongside bad or culturally distorted beliefs and opinions that pass as good theological truth. It's sort of like when you go into a hospital, right? Like if you ever go to a hospital, my father-in-law has a serious autoimmune disease. He has to be careful about going into the hospital. It's a place of healing, but you know what? You can actually pick up germs and die in the hospital. It's the same thing with our beliefs. We gotta be careful about what we pick up. So deconstruction then, stage two, is is the setup from stage one, where those things run up against life experience, crisis, transition, we move to a new city, and it brings us to a point where some of those unquestioned pre-critical beliefs no longer work for us, and they cause us to critically re-examine and challenge our inherited beliefs. And again, this is not all bad. Jesus does a lot of deconstructing in the Bible, Jesus de- deconstructed the rigid rabbinical interpretations. You've heard it said, but I say to you in the Sermon on the Mount, he deconstructs some of the temple systems and structures that kept people from life with God. My, my point is that doubt and deconstruction are normal human phases or can be normal human phases of constructive growth. We should deconstruct damaging or distorted beliefs, yes? Yes? We should deconstruct damaged or distorted beliefs. There's healthy deconstruction, right? When the house, uh, a couple years ago, I told you a story, um, our house started to literally collapse in on itself. Look, one day, just the ceiling exploded um, and it started sinking down. The pole in the center of our house started sinking down into the ground. Well, we actually learned that um, underneath the foundation, when they, this guy basically uh, didn't pull a permit... Uh, did his own construction project, and forgot to uh, lay a good foundation underneath. And so we get underneath, and there's all all these problems, and basically we have to deconstruct all the things that he did wrong in order to reconstruct a better foundation. So there's healthy deconstruction, but man, is there some unhealthy deconstruction as well. Not all deconstruction is good, right? And so we have to learn to discern the difference between healthy deconstruction and unhealthy deconstruction. And then, of course, all of that should lead us to a place of reconstruction, right? Where we return to our faith, our trust, with more maturity, more complexity. That's what should be on the other side of healthy deconstruction, is a stronger faith, a a more complex but simple faith, a depth, and a maturity, and a wisdom. And that's the question that we should be asking ourselves. if you find yourself in a season of doubt, is what's the goal of what I'm after right now? Am I just deconstructing in a reaction to my inherited beliefs or because I'm wounded and I I don't like this person? Or is it about a deeper faith in Jesus? Or is it just about an excuse to ultimately just do whatever I want? I love it. Frederick Buechner, the great novelist, says, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. (laughs) Everyone's going to doubt And here's the second thing we see from John's story is that our doubts are often personal and emotional, not just cultural and intellectual. We live in a secular moment where it's easy to doubt, right? I mean, easy. If you're under the age of 35, you've been raised predominantly in a cultural environment where it's easier to doubt than to have faith. And that's not always been the case. Several hundred years ago, there was what one theologian calls a sacramental tapestry, pre-enlightenment where God and faith and this sacred order was woven through every domain of society. And at that time, it was actually hard to doubt. And while there are certainly legitimate intellectual challenges to the faith in this moment of what we might call militant secularism, in my experience, most doubt comes like John, like it did for John, from our personal experiences of disappointment with Jesus. Maybe we had a personal expectation about God, right? Uh, uh, we had an expectation that to follow Jesus meant prosperity or the promise of healing. Maybe we suffered from an emotional wound. We, we got cancer. or Our parents got cancer. Or we lost someone close to us. or Our parents divorced, or we walked through a divorce, or our spouse betrayed us, or we are living in this unchosen singleness when we thought we'd be married by now. Maybe you, you had this crazy encounter with someone of another faith, and you were taught that people of other faiths were evil and all bad and immoral, and you met like a really nice person of another faith, and all of a sudden you're like, well, this doesn't fit my paradigm. Maybe you've had church hurt, right, where someone let you down or somebody wounded you or you found out some dark secret about somebody that you revered. My point is, oftentimes, in my experience, pastorally, a lot of doubt arises from personal wounds that are unresolved, to get lodged in our psyche, our emotions. John Ortberg, in his excellent book on faith and doubt, says, scratch the surface of any cynic and you will often find a wounded idealist underneath. Because of previous pain or disappointment, cynics make their conclusions about life before the questions have even been asked. And just notice Jesus' response to John's doubting question. Jesus speaks to his doubt Jesus replies to him, go to his disciples, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. This, this phrasing here, what you hear and see, is a reference back to both Jesus' teachings, what you hear in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew, and his works and miracles and healings. Particularly, you see that in chapters 8 through 9 with the 10 miracles. But but here's the problem. John was already familiar with Jesus' teachings and miracles. John, it says, heard in prison what Jesus was doing. It was actually Jesus' miracles that triggered his crisis of doubt. Jesus, you're claiming to be the Messiah who brings all of this healing and salvation in the kingdom of God near, and yet here's the rub for John. I'm still in prison. I've been left to die. So why would Jesus respond and say, but look at my miracles when John already knew. Is he just rubbing it in John's face? No. There's something deeper here that Jesus is subtly working toward with John. And he wants John to think this out for himself. Jesus' response here is actually a paraphrasing of several passages from the book of Isaiah that are prophecies about the coming Messiah. Let me just give you one example of this in Isaiah chapter 61. And this is actually a quote uh, that Jesus uses for his first sermon in Luke chapter 4, back back with his family of origin. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners. Now, do you notice what Jesus does here and what he tells John? Notice that Jesus doesn't quote the end of Isaiah 61, 1 through 4 to John. He leaves off the part about the prisoners being freed. The prophet John, who would have been steeped in the Hebrew scriptures from his childhood, would have immediately deciphered Jesus' coded language. What Jesus is saying to John is, John, I am the Messiah who has come to bring deliverance and salvation. The kingdom of God is here. And you know this from reading Isaiah. And I am the king. But I'm not going to be the kind of king you're expecting and hoping for right now. I'm not coming to topple the Roman Empire. I'm not coming to slay King Herod and establish my kingdom on earth right now. That's gonna come later. But for now, Jesus is saying, my primary mission and ministry is to bring healing and mercy to the poor and the lost and to die for my enemies rather than destroy them. In other words, John, I'm not coming to break you out of prison. There's more happening here, John, right now than you can possibly see or understand in the midst of your grief, in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of your doubt. And you're gonna have to wrestle with that. And you can imagine, I mean, just feel the like emotional atmosphere here. You can imagine how this must have landed with John. John. Like he sent his disciples hoping that Jesus would say, and in three days, I'm gonna come riding in and free you from prison. And he doesn't do that. It's heartbreaking, soul-crushing. I mean, isn't this what God does sometimes? He breaks our hearts. Doesn't give us what we want. He gives us what we need. As a matter of fact, in just two chapters, John will be beheaded by King Herod. So, it's no surprise then that Jesus continues, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. (laughs) Blessed is the one. Jesus drops another beatitude here. Flourishing is the one. Happy is the one. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. This Greek word here for offended is scandalizo, from which we get scandalized, which is Matthew's word for stumbling into sin and falling away from God. New Testament scholar Janine Brown says this word is usually used in the book of Matthew to indicate a negative response to Jesus and his ministry. Jesus's hometown is scandalized at him because they consider him a known quantity. And the Pharisees are often scandalized by Jesus's teaching. But Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not scandalized by me. Right? Jesus will offend you. Right? He's going to offend you. The question is, is that going to be the kind of offense like a good surgeon, a wound that heals, or a wound that leads to destruction? And this is the third lesson that we learned from John's story, is the importance of wrestling honestly with our doubts in the presence of Jesus. Wrestling honestly with our doubts. It does no good to live in denial, to press down our doubts. I mean, John's disappointed and yet his disappointment becomes this invitation, an invitation to reach out to Jesus and to honestly wrestle with his doubts by taking them to Jesus. Notice John doesn't take them to the internet. As far as we know, he doesn't start writing letters of the internet of his day. He doesn't gather a bunch of his disillusioned friends to swap deconstruction stories in his cell. He doesn't just walk away from Jesus in bitterness. He presses in. And he asked the hard questions. Hey, Jesus, I don't have a paradigm for this. Help me make sense of this, Jesus. And we've got to do this, right? So many Christians, when they encounter doubt, the temptation is to engage in what psychologists call spiritual bypassing. Are you familiar with that term? Spiritual bypassing simply means that we use spiritual concepts or platitudes or activities to bypass or avoid dealing with our true feelings, especially the hard ones like anger or grief or fear or loneliness or doubt or envy or shame. So what we like to do is instead of dealing honestly with our wounds or our questions or our disappointments, it's just so much easier just to stuff it down, to minimize or pretend like God will just magically make it disappear if we just click our heels and say, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home. home." If I just pray hard enough, if I just forgive enough times, if I just trust Jesus, if I just claim the power of the Holy Spirit, then this doubt will go away. Then I can control my past. I can control these hard emotions. I can control my wounds. But man, you do that in your 20s enough? You do that in your teens enough? That is a recipe. That is what you call a midlife crisis waiting to happen. (laughs) A dark night of the soul waiting to happen. Your doubts don't go away. You can't bypass them. What they do is they just go into hiding and then they come out sideways later in really toxic ways. And so we have to wrestle honestly with our doubts. Like John, we have to name them honestly in Jesus' presence. And then we have to be willing to follow the truth. Wherever it leads us, even if, and especially when Jesus overturns our expectations and we wind up being wrong like John was. Often that will mean, let me just give you like two practical tips if you're in the midst of doubt and you're wrestling. Often that will mean learning to doubt your doubts and learning to practice being wrong. What do I mean by doubt your doubts? This is a phrase that Tim Keller made famous and it was so helpful As a lot of us have gone through seasons of doubt, John is showing us in this passage that underneath all doubt is really an alternative set of beliefs. I believed the kingdom was going to look like this. It's not just doubt without faith. It's faith in something else. He was doubting Jesus because of his faith in his own expectations of what the kingdom of God would look like. And so Jesus here is inviting him to see his beliefs, to doubt his doubts. Similarly, we have to acknowledge that all of our doubts about Christianity have simultaneously hidden alternative beliefs underneath them that need to be biopsied and held up to the light and as rigorously examined as the Christian beliefs that we're doubting. And what you'll often discover when you put them to that kind of test is that your doubts aren't as airtight as you thought. Just to use one example... I hear all the time when people deconstruct their faith, Christianity is unjust and hypocritical. The church is unjust and hypocritical, so I'm going to walk away from the church. But here's the question. Here's the alternative belief that's underneath it. And that's not untrue. It's not untrue. But where do you get the standard for justice and hypocrisy from in the first place? Right? Like, from Christianity itself, (laughs) Like, there is no modern human rights movement, and even secular historians agree with that. Like, read Tom Holland's Dominion, not a Christian book. He says, without Christianity, there is no human rights movement. That's what he spends 800 pages, basically, arguing in Dominion. So it's less that Christianity isn't true then Christianity is failing to live up to its own standards. And guess what, Christians? That's why we believe in salvation by grace, not salvation by living up to the standards. We should expect Christianity to fail because it's a religion based on grace. And if we're not willing to extend that grace to other people, and we're not willing to extend that grace to ourselves, we don't know what it means to really be a disciple yet because we would want the same grace for ourselves because we know the same inconsistencies and hypocrisy and injustice that we see out in the world, we see it in our own hearts, right? Because as Solzhenitsyn said, the line of evil runs right through the human heart. So doubt your doubts and practice being wrong, right? Like we have a hard time admitting that we're wrong about anything, at least I do, and yet we have a a faith that's built on this idea of repentance, which just means like, Admitting that we're wrong about basically everything, and then turning to Jesus in faith to help us see the truth about everything. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, said all of the Christian life should be one of repentance, seeing what's wrong, admitting what's wrong, confessing our sins, and then turning and going the other way. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be human. And yet it's so hard for us. We're so prideful, we're so arrogant. We don't like to be wrong. Our brains are conditioned to do otherwise. I love Leah Labresco. She was this atheist who converted to Christianity. She went to Yale. And she was a debater for the political union at Yale. And she says, according to this political union, the mark of a good debater is not whether you win every debate, but are you humble enough to lose a debate? Because you will eventually lose a debate. And in, and in debater speak, they call this being broken on the floor. Are you humble enough to be broken on the floor? A good debater, she says, is so committed to truth that they are willing to be broken in its presence. So, this is where we leave John wrestling with his doubts in the presence of Jesus. These are actually the last words here in Matthew 11 that we hear from John. And so just to make sure that everybody gets what he's saying, and again, notice there's no rebuke here for John from Jesus. There's no like, how could you doubt? He turns to the crowds, and he begins to talk to them about John. And and basically, I'll just cut to the chase here for the sake of time. Jesus' words are so kind about John I mean, it's breathtakingly generous and timely given the fact that John's just like, hey, are you sure? Messiah. John, the one who's just expressed these serious doubts, is given one of the most profound affirmations in all of Jesus' teaching. There's no one greater, no greater prophet, Jesus says, than John. And, And Jesus is essentially here contrasting here when he's talking about the reed and he's talking about the clothing. He's contrasting John with King Herod. And he's saying, John is not like Herod. John is a prophet, and John is more than a prophet. And he goes on here to quote Malachi 3, a prophecy about the coming one, the Messiah. Before the Messiah comes, a messenger will be sent to prepare his way. Jews associated this with the great Hebrew prophet Elijah. And so what Jesus is saying is that John is functioning like Elijah, I tell you the truth, of all who've ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Now, there's a lot going on here, but just to simplify, Jesus is summarizing the story of God's people Israel through the life of John. John is the bridge between the old covenant, the old era, and the new era of this redemption story. All the law, all the prophets, in other words, all the scriptures are pointing toward this moment when the kingdom of heaven would come to earth In a Messiah. And so, John is the end of the old era. And and so, here's the thing Jesus is talking about John, but Matthew's talking about Jesus. You see it? John is the end of the old era, which means if he's the prophet to come before the Messiah, then Jesus is the beginning of the new era. And what Jesus says is the least significant person talking to the crowds, the poorest among you, the most sinful among you, the biggest doubter in this group. If you trust in the Messiah, in this new era of the kingdom, you'll be greater than John. You'll be the most significant person in the new era. If John is Elijah, then Jesus is making this subtle declaration that he is the Messiah. And that's the whole point of Matthew, right? Why is Jesus being so coy? Well, I mean, he's not afraid. He says, just, just, my time hasn't come yet. He knows if he starts to openly say, I'm the Messiah, he, will, like John, will be thrown in prison and he will be killed. And of course, that's what happens at the end of the story. And as we talked about last week, from here forward, starting with Herod, and then moving to the, through the Roman Empire and the religious leadership, the kingdom of God is going to be characterized by increasing hardship and suffering and violence. John experiences this. Jesus experiences this. His disciples experience this. We will experience this as the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of darkness. And then Jesus ends this little teaching here with these words, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is prophetic language from the Old Testament. In other words, this is like prophetic code for listen carefully. Think this out for yourself. I'm not going to spoon feed you the truth. You're going to have to wrestle with this and internalize this and decide if you want to build your life on this. And so, I want to just, kind of the last point I want to make here, the fourth thing I want us to learn from John's story is the importance of cultivating a deeper faith in Jesus during seasons of doubt. Because that's what Jesus is after with John. John, your faith is being tested. And and, and the invitation here is don't walk away from me, press into me. Go deeper in faith. Trust, like a great translation for the word faith is, is trust. It's the same word in the Bible, trust. Now, here's the reality about faith. Everybody has faith. Atheists have faith. Christians have faith. The myth of secularism is that doubt and skepticism operates apart from faith. It's not true, right? If you're not trusting Jesus, you're trusting something or someone else, probably yourself and your own intellect. Or maybe you're trusting a guru or a luminary I mean, life operates on principles of faith, right? Like, that's how the medical system works. That's how, like, you got here this morning in a car, trusting. Like, government works that way, although we live in a moment where not many people are trusting there. But life operates off a principle of trust and faith. And John's story invites us to see doubt as this invitation to deeper faith in Jesus, deeper trust in Jesus, deeper surrender to Jesus. Jesus. This is the goal of following Jesus. It's not to never have doubts. The goal of following Jesus is to learn to trust him in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of the inevitable uncertainties of life. The goal is not to have, and hear me, not to have complete certainty. If you are waiting for certainty to follow Jesus, you will never follow Jesus. But if you're waiting for certainty in life, you will never be human. Because we always are operating on the basis of incomplete trust. So the goal is not complete certainty of our theological beliefs. The goal is not just knowing right things about Jesus. The goal is, I love the way John Ortberg says this, the goal is strategic uncertainty. Following Jesus is strategic uncertainty. We all have uncertainty. The question is, will we be strategic with that or not? What's the object of our faith? Can we trust it? He tells this great story in his book, Faith and Doubt, about, um, have you ever heard the word uh, funambulist? Anybody heard that word? Somebody somebody thought it meant somebody who's really good at having fun. Um, But it's actually an acrobat who walks on a cable from a great height, a tightrope walker. I'm going to show you this next picture. There have been many of them, but one of the greatest tightrope walkers of all time, about 150 years ago, was this guy named Charles Blondin. Blondin came over to the United States from overseas. He was fascinated, obsessed with Niagara Falls. He wanted to cross over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. So he strung a hemp cord 1,100 feet across, 160 feet above Niagara Falls, and he crossed over from one side to, the, to another. A crowd of 100,000 people gathered to watch him walk this tightrope inch by inch, step by step. That's a true, true story. No safety net. Now, tons of people were taking pictures of him, and so he did it again. He crossed over, and this time he brought a camera with him, and he took a picture of the crowd while they were taking pictures of him. Then he went over another time, and he took a chair with him, and he balanced a chair on the rope and stood on the chair. And he went back another time, and he fixed an omelet, and he actually did this, and he lowered it to the passengers on the mate of the mist so that one of them could have it for breakfast. And then he went another time, and this time he took a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls with him. And he turned to the crowd and he's like, Do you think I can do this? Of course, they all believed. Do you think I can take 200 pounds across this tightrope? Yes. And then it got really quiet, and he asked this question Are there any 200 pound people in the audience that are willing to get into the wheelbarrow? It got super quiet. One man, a guy named Harry Colcord, who knew Blondin, had worked with him before, had seen him do this trick a thousand times, got into the wheelbarrow and rode across the tightrope with Blondin. The point is, of of this illustration, is that there's a huge difference between standing on the banks, watching and applauding, yay, across across the tightrope, versus getting into the wheelbarrow. I mean, can you imagine riding that wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? You don't think you'd be experiencing some doubts? You don't think you'd be nauseated to the point of almost throwing up? I mean, that's the life of faith, the difference between believing something about Jesus, like John believed something about Jesus, versus the experience of trusting and walking with Jesus. Of course, we're going to be disappointed, Of course, we're going to wrestle with doubts. That's the nature of any good relationship is you can't control the other person. And it's an up and down journey of walking by faith and trusting that they have your best interests at heart. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus, not to stand on the side and clap and adore and admire and and write theological statements about Jesus, but it's to actually get in the wheelbarrow and trust him even when it sounds like the craziest thing in the universe to do. That's what Jesus is inviting John into, the journey of faith, the journey of surrender, trust, walking with Jesus, following Jesus. So I just wanna kind of end our time by just, there's a few things I just wanna mention to you maybe that could help strengthen your trust in Jesus. How do we strengthen our trust in Jesus in the midst of doubt? I love that Jesus says, go tell John what you see and hear. Seeing the works of Jesus and hearing the words of Jesus are the key component to nurturing our faith, our trust in Jesus. Keeping our eye on Jesus in the midst of doubt helps us to interpret our doubts in light of Jesus's truth rather than interpreting Jesus in light of our doubts. Does that make sense? And so a few practices that have been helpful to Christians over the years. One, um, just a daily practice of reading the Gospels, right? Opening up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and actually reading what it says about Jesus. I'm amazed at how many young people deconstruct a Jesus that's not actually in the Bible. And what we're often deconstructing is the Jesus that was handed to us by our parents or our grandparents or a political agenda, some professor at IU or something. But it's not actually what Jesus said. It's not actually what Jesus lived. So we need to be getting up every morning and reading the Gospels in the Gospels, you encounter this complex figure who claimed to be God and yet lived this human life who was so compassionate and yet was always offending people, right? Like Jesus breaks all of our molds and our paradigms and that, that's exactly what we should be expecting. If Jesus is not just a projection of my imagination, he will confront me and there will be lots of things I don't like, but I have to surrender to because he's God and I'm not. And so for me, that just looks like everyday waking up And engaging in just 15 or 20 or 30 minutes of imaginative prayer in conversation with Jesus, putting myself into a passage, seeing Jesus through the eyes of faith, or trying to see Jesus through the eyes of faith with his disciples, and say, like they said in the Gospels, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Second thing I would encourage you to do is stay anchored in a church community. For two millennia, faith has been formed in the context of the church. And this sounds so basic, but like, how easy is it just to walk away and think, I'll figure this out on my own, especially if you have church hurt. And that's why the creeds, which are statements not just of what to believe, but also how to believe, teach us to say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. We need others, like they do in the gospels, to bring us to Jesus Right, especially when we're doubting, believing for us, when we can't even believe for ourselves. The church is this womb that just holds us when we can't even hold ourselves. When we're falling apart, the church comes around, around us and, and prays for us and should at least be encouraging us and bringing us to Jesus. And we need the church to be that safe place where people are not surprised in your missional community or your discipleship group and you're like, hey, I'm doubting, Like, we don't mind people talking about sexual addictions. We don't mind people talking about all kinds of moral failures. But when it comes to doubt, everybody's like, please step away. You know? The church should be a safe place to wrestle. It's in the church that we hear stories of not just those who've deconstructed But if you stay around long enough and you're around old enough people, also those who've reconstructed their faith, I've heard a thousand deconstruction stories on social media. You rarely hear one of somebody reconstructing their faith. Like, oh yeah, after I deconstructed, I actually found like a really deep relationship with Jesus and now it's great. We need to hear those stories. We need to wrestle with good literature that, of people who've done that. One book I would highly commend to you, this book After Doubt was recently written by A.J. Svoboda. It's a wonderful book. Get this and read this with a group of friends. Read Francis Spufford's Unapologetic. Read Tim Keller's Making Sense of God. Read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. These are all really smart people who've wrestled with doubts. Read Dostoevsky, right? Like wrestling with doubt and yet finding Jesus in the midst of our doubts. One last practice, I love this. Bode actually talks about this in his book. He talks about carrying the bones. In the early church, congregates cared for the bones of their heroes, especially in times of persecution. They would gather in catacombs and they would actually take communion surrounded by the bones of the heroes. Sounds really weird, but here's the basic point they were making. I mean, this is like in Israel in the Old Testament when they carried around Moses' bones. They carried around Elijah's bones, the fathers who had died. The idea is that we're safe around the bones of those who've gone before us those who are waiting with us on the return of Jesus. His point in this is saying God grows our faith as we learn from the stories and the histories and the traditions of saints who've wrestled with the same things we've wrestled with before us. When you go back into history and you read hundreds of years ago, you begin to see some of the blind spots of our cultural moment, some of the things that we're wrestling with now that are unique to our cultural moment because of some of the assumptions post-enlightenment in a secular age where you're carrying different assumptions, and we can't see those with our contemporaries. But if we honor what G.K. Chesterton called the democracy of the dead, we talk a lot about diversity and inclusion, about including our ancestors in how we wrestle. Their voices need to be heard too. And we'll often find with them how they thrived in the midst of hardship and opposition. And so, this is the journey of faith, right? Blaise Pascal says In faith, there's enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. This is the journey of faith. And so, if you're here and you're struggling with doubt, I just want to invite you as we come to communion to consider Jesus' imitation. Anyone who has ears to hear, let them hear. Think it out for yourself. Wrestle. This is a safe place to wrestle. Not everyone's story of doubt is going to look the same. John doubts, has to trust Jesus with no evidence, nothing to touch. He struggles in prison without ever seeing him again, and he's killed, and he never lives to see the resurrection on this side of the kingdom of God. And John 20, Thomas doubts, and Jesus is like, hey, come touch the wound in my side. And he gets to touch Jesus and see him resurrected. And he believes he's the first person in the gospel of John to say, my Lord and my God. And he becomes a missionary, church tradition tells us, and goes to India and preaches the gospel. And if you're a Christian and you're of Indian heritage, it's likely that Thomas is your patron saint. But the reality that carries both of them, both John and Thomas, through their doubts is not their faith. It's the grace of Jesus holding on to them. So regardless of your story, It doesn't matter if you have it all figured out. Jesus is holding on to you. Don't forget that. He's not gonna let you go. It's not that your faith will be strong enough or your trust or your certainty will be enough. It's that Jesus is holding you. And if you will be patient and you will wrestle faithfully with Jesus, he will give you a faith on the other side of doubt that is deeper and more beautiful, I believe, than anything you could ever imagine. And so I just want to close our time as we go to communion with just a prayer. I want to read a prayer over you from a saint. And I mean that in the most Protestant way. Um, Just a a sage, a luminary figure, unless you're like this person. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila has this beautiful prayer. And I just want to invite you to maybe just close your eyes and get into a posture of receiving. And as you think about your heart and where you're at right now, and if you're wrestling with doubt, or even if you're not, maybe you know somebody that's wrestling with doubt. I just want to invite us into a posture of trusting Jesus, honestly bringing our hearts before him, and let these words just sink deep into your soul. It's a bomb. She writes this. Let nothing disturb you. Let nothing frighten you. All things are passing away. God never changes Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God lacks nothing. And God alone suffices. Jesus, would you be so kind as to meet us in this place as we come to the table with our doubts, and we wrestle Seeking deeper faith, seeking deeper understanding, seeking, seeking a deeper encounter with you by your Spirit, would you come and meet us? Would you come and remind us that you've done everything that we cannot do in our own strength and power, that you, as the object of our faith, are stronger than our faith will ever be, and that you are holding on to us? So, would you help us to hold on to you and our unbelief? Would you give us more belief? Would you give us more trust? Would you remind us here at this table that? You are all that we are longing for and you have satisfied the deepest longings of the human heart. We pray this in your name.